Good morning again. Uh, I, I want to tell you about uh, my first job uh, in college. My first job, I was an intern uh, for this uh, for this congressman that I'll just say was very uh, bombastic, uh, little strong personality, kind of lone ranger. Uh, vocal guy, and I was, this is my first exposure to Washington, D.C., uh, being an intern for this congressman, who will remain, remain nameless. And uh, the, one of the first things that I saw was this. Um, this congressman uh, stood against uh, his party's leadership, and one time he did it in a committee meeting, and he voted against something that kind of struck down this really major bill. And so I'm in the office. And all of a sudden, this, this person just kind of flies by my desk into the congressman's office and slams the door. And the next thing I know, there's this screening in the congressman's office uh, between who I learned it was the majority leader of the party and this congressman. Uh, and the majority leader is swearing at the congressman. And uh, they're arguing back and forth. And uh, here's two very... Um, strong figures yelling at each other, saying, who has authority? Who has the right to vote the way they want to? Who has the right to buck the party? All these kind of things going back and forth. And, uh, you know, who's in control? Well, what happens is the congressman, he's sitting at his desk, and I, you don't know this, but uh, underneath each of the congressman's desks is this button, and uh, uh, he... Uh, He's trying to stand up to confront the majority leader. So he stands up and he hits the button underneath the desk. And the button notifies the Capitol Police. So here comes... So these two guys are arguing about authority. Here comes the Capitol Police. They don't know it's the majority leader that's um, yelling at the congressman. They, you know, they throw open the door, the police do, wondering if there's been some fight uh, between some person and the congressman. And... Uh, the congressman realized who the true authority was, the Capitol Police at that point in time, and uh, the conversation was done. Well, you know, we are going to see, and what we see in this type of age, the first century, especially in Jerusalem, that there were a lot of warring parties fighting for who had authority over Jerusalem or the future of Israel. And at that time, there were these groups called Sadducees and groups called Pharisees and um, Herodians and, um, you know, Zealots and Essenes, all these different groups that were fighting for who had authority, who knew the way that Jerusalem was supposed to go. And the epicenter of this place was the temple. But then who walks into the picture? Who is the police that storms into the office? Who is the true authority that comes in? Is Jesus. What happens when Jesus confronts human authority? What happens? What comes out? What is said? What is challenged? When Jesus comes against human authority... Well, let's find out together, shall we? Let's open the Word. It's printed in your bulletin. You also look at the Bible. We're going to look at Mark chapter 11. We're going to start in verse 27. We're going to go all the way through 12, 
17. I just want to warn you, I'm not going to be able to um, focus on the, the latter section uh, today. We're just going to be focusing on the first two. But I will read it all because we're going to try to go through all of Mark here. So please pay attention as we read God's word. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he'll say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John was really, uh, John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to the tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in, in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances that truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. The Gospel of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word. I pray that it would be able to change us and transform us. That it would be able to go so deep that it would go into the authority structures that we have in our lives. That we are able to do things ourselves. That it would even go past that to know that you are the one that rules over us. God, we pray these things in your son's name. Amen. We're just joining us. We've been going through the book of Mark. And uh, I just want to explain why are we, why would you as a new church plant go through the book of Mark? Well, the reason I did is this. 
is uh, the very name Emmaus Road. Is, uh, it comes from a passage in Luke that talks about two men walking with Jesus. Even though they walked with him and knew the stories of Jesus, they weren't, their hearts were not open, their eyes were not open to knowing that who the risen Lord was. And I think that fits our context in Appleton, Wisconsin. We live in a place where many of us, even ourselves, we know the stories of Jesus. We know the religious rituals. We know what it means to live in Christian culture. But are our eyes open and our hearts ablaze to follow the risen Christ? And that's why we go through the book of Mark. I think there is no other gospel that gets to the point of who Jesus is and what his mission is quicker than the book of Mark. And so we're going to take these six months, like we've done, all the way to Labor Day, to go through the book of Mark to answer that question for ourselves and then start answering that question to those around us. Who is this Jesus? Who is this resurrected Christ? That our eyes would be open, that our hearts would be ablaze to what it means to follow him. Well, at this point in time in the story in Mark, Jesus has um, led an outside movement, basically. Uh, I'm going to call it a bohemian movement, okay? You know, a bunch of artists, ragtag fishermen on the outskirts of Jerusalem, you know? And he's, he's gathered quite a crowd. But it's kind of been the outside movement, But now we've seen over the past few weeks that Jesus is bringing the outside movement to the center of the religious and political world, Jerusalem. And you see that he has brought the crowds and the people with him in his teaching. And now he is there. This is not just Bohemian movement time. This is, I am in the epicenter of everything. Now the temple. This 32 acres in Jerusalem where... God is present, where the leaders of the land are there, and we see the leaders coming out. And the group here that's mentioned in the passage, it it says things like uh, the scribes and the elders and chief priests, it's probably referring to a group called the Sanhedrin, which is a group of 71 leaders that kind of make the religious and political decisions for Jerusalem. And now Jesus has turned over tables and done crazy things, and now they're like, okay, who, did, who do you think you are? Okay, what is going on here? I, I just put it in modern um, language and just a modern analogy. It would be like some character in the United States, in the country, in Nebraska, just gathering large, large crowds, or maybe he's up in Merrill, Wisconsin, or something like that. I'm not bashing Merrill. Um, small town Merrill. Um, just gathering all these crowds and all these people, and he's getting a lot of press, a lot of things. He's done this for many times. And now he takes this huge crowd. We'll say it's come to millions, okay? And he's brought them to the mall of Washington, D.C. And now the authorities, the senators, congressmen, chief justices, the president, everyone, you know, he's bringing a ruckus to Washington, D.C. And now they're wondering, were you elected? What, what authority do you have? What are you doing? Why do you even have a right to say these things or do these things or pass laws or even say that something is going to happen. The same way these Sanhedrin group are saying, do you speak for Hillel? You know, that Jewish sect, do you speak for Shema? That Jewish sect? What authority are you speaking from? Where does it come from? And they are worried about who he is and what he's doing. 
And so, this is the question that they ask. Where does your authority come from? And here, Jesus answers, like Jesus does to people that try to trick him, by a question. And at first glance, you might think the question is a little bit uh, circumventing the whole issue. Because he goes back to John the Baptist. Is he just trying to avoid the issue? Why is he asking a question about John the Baptist when they're asking him about his authority? And I want you to pay attention here. Um, At the beginning of Mark, um, because Mark doesn't really start with the birth narrative or anything like that, but it starts with the initiation of Jesus' ministry. And we remember, how did Jesus' ministry initiate? How do we know his, his ministry was from whoever? Remember, he was with John the Baptist. And remember, John the Baptist baptized him. And what happened at the baptism? The Spirit came down, and he said, This is my Son, an authority from God, saying, This is authority from God given to Jesus. Now, that is what he's thinking about when he mentions John the Baptist again. My authority came from God. So he's asking them, Where does John's authority come from? The guy that initiated my ministry, the guy that said I was um, one initiated from God, that God came down, where does his come from? And here we see the Pharisees are perplexed by his question, or not perplexed, but trying to figure out what to do with it. Because if they answer one way, they say, okay, John the Baptist's ministry came from heaven, from God, then it would give legitimacy to say that Jesus does have right authority. And now if he says it came from man, they'll annoy the crowds. If they annoy the crowds, then they're going to be in trouble themselves. So rather than admitting what the truth is, where they, they do think, okay, yeah, John, that's probably his ministry came from God, they are going to just say, we don't know. We just don't know. But Jesus wants confrontation. I, it's very interesting. He says here, and it's, it's in an imperative, answer me. In the NIV, it's tell me. He no longer wants them to avoid things. He wants them to address the issue. He wants them to finally deal with who he is. There's no longer any chance of avoiding it. I want you to deal with it. And this is a big point that I want you to get. Jesus says, I have not come so you can question my authority. I have come to question your authority. I have not come so you can question my authority. I have come to question your authority. (laughs) I'm sitting at my desk and Morgan comes up to me. And she is a wreck, okay? She let me tell the story, okay? Um, I get a pay, I pay Morgan 50 cents when I tell stories about my kids, so that's what they get for me telling the stories. So she is a wreck, okay? She is just crying, and she, like, points out there's, like, this uh, paint on her dress, okay? It's not that much. And I'm like, what, what's the matter? I say, oh, I got paint on my dress. Oh, my God. And I say, I'm going to come out. It's not that big of a deal. It's really okay. But she is just, she is just upset about it. She's so upset. And I don't know, well, why are you so upset, Morgan? Why is this such a big deal? And she just won't tell me why it's such a big deal. I'm going to paint on my dress. 
And uh, not until I realized later when Erin comes home and I'm talking to her that Erin had specifically told her while she was doing the painting that she was not supposed to wear that dress. Okay? And so she has been found out. You know, my mom, oh no, mom's found out that I wore the dress and I got paint on it. When we are pressed, when our authority is pressed, when our ways are pressed, just like the Sanhedrin, we don't like to admit that someone else was right. Someone else has better authority over lives than we do. The truth is we hate being told what to do. We hate those things. You need to do this. You need to do that. We want to live our own ways. That's the American way. We want to be free. And when we do wrong, when we're found out, when there's authority greater than us, we don't like to admit our faults. We can't, St. Peter's saying, we can't admit Jesus has authority. It will mitigate our control. Our power over this temple, our power over the religious and political system of this world, we can't give that up. No one can have authority over us. Not even God himself. Many of you have probably been in situations where authority has been abused over you. You might have been belittled, torn down, and it makes us it makes us question authority. It does. It makes us think I don't know if I can believe that there is something greater than me, something to tell me the way to live because of the ways maybe people have treated us in the past. And many times we project that image towards God Himself. But I want you to see something that is not the good news of Jesus. Jesus is upset with the Sanhedrin, not because, you know, they're in power, not because of the roles that they're in, nothing like that. They're upset because they won't even answer a question. They won't even take one step to admit there is something greater than themselves. The good news of Jesus is this, and we saw this all through Mark before this, that Jesus just wants small steps of faith. They would say, you know, Jesus, you are right. And even that I can't believe that, help my unbelief. Remember that? We saw that. Even help my unbelief. I would encourage you, is there, is there an issue in your life when one they say, I just can't give Jesus authority over this. My money, maybe. My time, the way I parent my kids. The way I treat one relationship. The images that I look at. Whatever it might be. Jesus is not saying, oh, give it all up right now. Do X, do Y. He's saying, no. Just take one small step to say that I have authority over those things. Can you just take one step that I have authority over this? The Sanhedrin can't even do that. 
And Jesus, seeing that they can't do that, seeing that they are not really getting to the heart of the issue, he reloads. <laughs> he reloads for round two with the Sanhedrin. And he does it through a parable. Oh, man, Jesus. It's just parables. Oh, this is good. Okay, so a parable is an allegory. It's basically a comparison of two situations to make something a little bit more clear. So Jesus is trying to make this issue a little bit more clear. So he goes to this idea of a vineyard. And he is so good at speaking to people. He knows his audience. Uh, you know, if you're the Sanhedrin, you know the Bible really well. And you probably know Isaiah really well. And uh, Isaiah 5 uses the same analogy of vineyard. So he's using vineyard language, and um, the Sanhedrin says, oh yes, I can track with that. And the vineyard language in Isaiah 5 is talking about Jerusalem being this vineyard, okay? Being this, this place, this place that God has created. And one that will go through destruction, but then will be made be renewed. But then Jesus uses the analogy, and the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin might even be happy about this, because now they're tracking with him, because he says, someone else has been given control of this vineyard. And now the Sanhedrin says, oh man, he's getting to the point now. And in their mind, who are they thinking is the one who's the tenant of the vineyard at this point in time? Who would be the tenant of the vineyard at that time? Rome, right? Oh man, now he's going to bash Rome. Now he's going to talk about the destruction of Rome and then the remaking of Israel. But then Jesus keeps going on the illustration. And the illustration starts, to, starts pointing not towards Rome, but it starts pointing towards them. Okay, who are the leaders that took prophets and beat them? Who are the people that took multiple prophets and beat them and killed them over and over again? Who are the people that did that? The leaders of Israel. And now the Sanhedrin is starting to see, as you see at the end of the passage here, they're starting to see that Jesus is talking about them. They are the ones that are the tenants of God's vineyard and the ones that when God sends his messengers, his people, he, they kill them, they beat them, they send them off. Jesus is trying to make a point to them. He's saying all that you have, this temple that you sit on, Jerusalem, Israel, everything position of authority that you have is not yours it's God's been given to you so that when God comes and directs you in the way to go you should listen to him because it's his but they will not listen and instead they rebel against that and beat those messengers of God and kick them out So uh, Bill used the nice uh, Civil War imagery a couple weeks ago, so I get my chance, right, Bill? My Northern Union chance, right? And it's 150 years, right? So it's, it's Civil War time, okay? 1861, 1865, so 2011, 2015. So um, 150 years. So Civil War analogies, they're just going to happen, okay? Um, 
Uh, George McClellan, okay, not the sterling example that Robert E. Lee was of uh, a character kind of person, uh, was uh, the commander for a lot of the time of uh, the Army of the North, the greatest army um, collection of the North in Northern Virginia. And he's a young guy, and uh, Lincoln uh, had let this young man um, take control of the army, and uh, McClellan said, I will do it, and I will do it well. I will show you how it's done. Pretty arrogant young guy. And uh, he was starting to get a lot of criticism because he was just training all these troops, and he wasn't fighting. While Lee was going around, you know, conquering all these places, the troops just sat. And so he was getting a lot of criticism. But Lincoln defended him over and over again, this person that he had put in this position of authority. Well, Lincoln um, said, okay, I need to talk to my general. So uh, something that a president doesn't do, he, he walks from the White House one evening and went to McClellan's house in Washington, D.C. And the servant came and said, uh, the general is out at a wedding. He'll be back in a little bit. So Lincoln said, I'll wait. So Lincoln waited in the foyer area for McClellan to go come home. And General McClellan came home. He saw Lincoln in the foyer he walked past him. He goes upstairs. The servant comes and says, um, the president is downstairs waiting for you. And McClellan says, um, tell him I'll be down in a bit. The servant comes down, tells he'll be down in a bit. And then Lincoln waits. An hour passes by. The servant comes down and says, uh, General McClellan has gone to bed for the night. And Lincoln leaves. Ridiculous! Insane! He gave him that position. He gave him that authority and he ignores him. He doesn't listen to his authority. He goes so far not to listen to Lincoln's authority. What does he do? He runs against Abraham Lincoln for president in 1864. Loses, of course. But that's how bad it was. We say, isn't that crazy? Isn't that saying that someone who is given a position of authority, the president and the president that has been kind and gracious and has defended and has been by his side, he would treat him in that way? Are our hearts not the same way? Has not God given us all the things that we have? It is His time. It is His money. It is His body. But what do we say in response to that authority? No, it's not. It's my time. It's not yours. We rationalize the choices that we make with, our, with His money, with His body, with His time, with His gifts. We rationalize the choices we make because we think it's ours. And the cry of the culture speaks to, us, speaks to us in such a powerful way that I hear it time and time again, and I speak it to myself time and time again. And it's this mantra that I hear over and over again. I can do whatever I want as long as I don't hurt anyone else. I can do whatever I want as long as I don't hurt anyone else. That's the American way. That's freedom. You stand against that, you stand against America. 
I mean, you stand against my rights, my privileges. You're an authoritarian. How dare you? See, that's what church is. They just want to restrict me, tell me the way to live. That's where church is. That's what this preacher's doing. Now he's getting loud. Uh-oh, trouble. <laughs> David, David Bisgrove, he's a pastor in New York. He has a great analogy. So let's say you had a three-year-old. And the three-year-old, you came home one day and you saw the three-year-old had taken the fish out of the fishbowl and put it on the couch. And you say, why did you take the fish out of the fishbowl and put it in the couch? And the three-year-old says to you, because I wanted the fish to be free. I wanted the fish to have a lot of room and the couch has lots of room. And you say, that's crazy. A fish doesn't belong on the couch. It belongs in the fishbowl, in a confined place where he can be in water. That is his place where he's supposed to live. It's there he is truly free. If he's outside of that, he'll die. That is true freedom for us. Freedom doesn't come when we try to live by our own ways. When we try to do that, we are not free. Instead, we are enslaved to other authorities in this world. Computer games, our money, our body image, what our kids think of us, what our friends think of us, our title at work, that enslaves us. And Jesus is saying, no, if I am your authority, then you will be free. Because I have made you a certain way. I have put you in my vineyard, in my place. This is my home. When you live there, then you are free. An article in the New York Times this week drew a lot of press. The blogosphere was going crazy. Social critics were talking about it. It was crazy. It was a young journalist that did an investigative report of women at the University of Pennsylvania. She didn't know the direction that the article would go. But after six months, she wrote the article, and it was about what was happening with young women at an Ivy League school at the University of Pennsylvania. These are smart, intelligent women. And the article was about what she found out about how these women think about relationships and life and specifically sex. And this is what the article said. She says, the journalist, young people see college as a unique life stage in which they don't and shouldn't have obligations other than their own self-development. And this is what one of the people, the young ladies at the university, said to her. And she said, this fits the majority of the women at the university, she said, speaks the same kind of language. And this is what the young woman said. I've always heard this phrase, oh, marriage is great, or relationships are great. You get to go on this journey of change together. That sounds terrible. I don't want to go through those changes with you. I want you to have change and become enough of your own person so that when you meet me, we can have a stable life and be very happy. I definitely wouldn't say I've regretted any of my one-night stands. And this is what she's saying. The sexual culture is crazy at UPenn. 
I don't, I don't regret any of my one-night stands. Ten years from now, no one will remember. I will not remember who I've slept with, but I will remember my transcript because it's still there. I will remember what I did. I'll remember my accomplishments and places and where my name is hung on this campus. Ridiculous! Appalling! said the social critics. This is crazy. Is this what's happened to college campuses? Is this what's happened to America? And I'm in a church, so um, we're all supposed to be appalled at this too, right? We're also, we should be all... This is appalling! This, I can't believe this! Who would think this way? Who would treat their body this way or treat other men this way and just use them and be okay with that? Over and over and over again. How could they do this? Well, let me be like Jesus and turn it on you. That we say, oh man, Dan, you're just talking about the Romans. Good thing you're not talking about me. But the thing is, I think that phrase that that girl used is not very dissimilar from the phrase that we use ourselves. I'm in a unique life stage. I shouldn't have obligations other than my own self-development. I'm in a life phase where I have money. I should be able to have vacation where I want and when I want. I have young kids. I, I shouldn't have to serve someone else. I'm busy with them. I'm a young married person. I just have time for my spouse. I shouldn't have to have spend time with someone else. In my body, it's just not the way it wants to be right now. I should have time to work out when I want to, how I want to. I'm, please, I'm speaking to myself, okay? Do we not say the same things? And in the process, we run over those around us to live our own way and be our own way. Because the only authority that we have is ourselves. No one's going to tell me what to do. No one's going to tell me where to go. No one's going to tell me where to spend my time, my money. But this is God's vineyard. And if we live that way, we will only destroy ourselves and others in the process. <laughs> There's something really perplexing about this passage. And something that is just crazy about this owner of the vineyard. He doesn't send just one servant or two servants or three servants. He sends multiple servants there. And what happens to these servants? They get beat or they get killed? So, you know, you would think after a while you'd get the picture that, okay, if I send people there, they're going to get hurt and they're going to get killed. But his rationale is, maybe if I send my son, something different will happen. Right? I mean... He, it seems like he has an army that's going to be able to destroy this vineyard at some point in time. Just maybe send some troops with your son or something. Send him a body, you know, like some bodyguards or something. 
But he does something insane. He sends his son, his beloved son, to this vineyard. And of course, he gets what happens. The son gets killed and he gets thrown out. This is the craziness of grace. The craziness of the gospel. That, Jesus, that God would send His Son, Jesus, knowing what Jesus would face on this earth, knowing that the authority figures of this world would reject Him and not believe Him, that we ourselves would drive the nails in His hands. He knew that that would happen, but He still sent Him. Do you know what's even crazier? That this Son... That Jesus could have come right in the temple and right there and then, right there with us, he could have destroyed it all. He could have said, done, over with. I am the authority figure. I am the one in control. You are done. But you know the crazy thing is? He took on our wanting to do it our own way. He took on our sin. He took on mine, mine, mine that we say as we beat him and killed him. He took it on himself. He took it on himself and was even separated from the vineyard, separated from his father, so that we could inherit that kingdom, so that we could live in this place, that we could say, it is mine. I can't have this. I can enjoy working out, which is awesome. I can enjoy a vacation, which is amazing. I can enjoy my spouse or relationships, which are great because they're in the confines of God's creation. I can enjoy it fully and sin will not destroy it because God's Son took it on Himself and died and was thrown out of the vineyard so that we could have it and we could say, it is mine. And that stone was rejected and thrown out. And what has happened to that stone? It's become the cornerstone. It is our foundation. It is a rock that we look to and we can stand on as a church and say, now I can bear with that difficult person in church that I don't want to have to deal with and spend time with them even though I don't feel like I have the time because of that cornerstone, that one that did it for me. That I can put off my workout and spend time with my kids because I know that Jesus took his time to spend with me. That I can take my money and I can spend it in places where people have need because I know that Jesus gave up everything for me. You know what the problem is? We look at authority. We look at figures that tell us what to do and we say, how dare you tell me how to live my life? But the gospel says this. Look with me in verse 11. This verse is... It's just earth-shattering. It's amazing. 12.11 This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The good news of the Gospel is this, that can, we can look at that cornerstone, that we can look at our vineyard, that we can look at Jesus, and we can look at that authority figure and say, 
You just tell me what to do. You just make me do this or do that. But instead, we can look at that and say, how marvelous that is. That you would do that so I can finally be free. That is the good news. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we want to live our own way. We want to be our own authority. And in this culture, we think we have finally arrived when we can do it our way. But you have said no. True freedom can only come by trusting and believing in you. Lord, we need you. We need you to be our cornerstone. Pray these things in your son's name. Amen.